This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Inclusive education. What is it and how can we help women around the world break down the barriers to full inclusion at school? Today on The Gender Card, we talk to two former teachers and now Griffith University researchers about how their research is revealing the path to a more truly inclusive education and a better standard of learning for all. Julie Ballingary is a proud Gambanji Dungari woman. Prior to her PhD, Julie worked as a teacher in the education system, mainly in the early years. Her experience in the classroom and within the system has given her a unique perspective and understanding on Indigenous education, particularly as an Aboriginal woman. She is now examining policy-making processes to understand why Indigenous education policies are continuously failing to address the issue of educational inequality. She hopes her work will help place Indigenous education at the centre rather than on the periphery of education policy. While for Nina Ginsberg, after many years of blogging about the myriad ways bicycles create change, her current research focuses on how bikes can enable more girls to access education in some of the most challenging parts of Africa. She's finding through her fieldwork that sometimes the most simple, out-of-school solutions like bikes as transportation are key to overcoming gender discrimination and improving access to essential services. Nina and Julie, welcome to the Gender Card. So Julie, we might start with you. Could I get you to explain a bit about your background again this is such an important central aspect to your work yeah no worries so my passion for education comes from my family so my dad he was born in 1948 so technically he's old enough to be my grandfather so I have been brought up with a lot of different understanding to people my age that are also indigenous because their parents might not be as old So when my dad was born, he was born obviously under the segregation and um, protection era. And so when he was growing up, he couldn't get the education that he wanted. There was a black school, so where the kids went to school, so they weren't mixed. And I think I remember my dad telling me that when he was a kid, the... The teacher used to throw chairs at them, used to throw the duster blocks at them, uh, telling me he was no good black kid and wouldn't amount to very much and that he would be better in the garden. So he was said that, you know, he gets sent out and things like that. Now, not all stories are that bad, but, you know, I think also, too, it's a product of the time and also people would think that that's normal. And I think it's important for people to remember that too, that this is not long ago. This is a generation ago. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like when people say, oh, can't you get over it or stuff like that? It's kind of like, well, that's my dad. Like, you know, like, as I said, like my dad is an older generation, but that's still my dad. So he only went, I think, to grade six. And so he didn't get very far And he would always say to me, and you'll hear many Indigenous people say this, that education is one of the most important things that our kids need. 
And it's not necessarily to get a job or to succeed within this society. It's so we understand how the world works. And as I've gotten older, I've come to understand that I walk within two worlds. Within education, we call code switching when one child switches from one language to another. And I say that I code switch between the way that you're meant to be within the world. And I think in Aboriginal terms of reference rather than a Western term of reference. And going to school and getting an education helps you to understand the Western terms of reference and how to walk within that world. And I think to sort of move forward and be successful, you have to know how to do both. And that's something that a lot of Indigenous people push for. It's so important for our kids to know how to walk within the two worlds. So as my dad grew up, he told us about when he grew up on in Barraville on the mission there, and that has quite a dark history in itself, if people know about the Barraville murders and things like that. Mm, and Barraville's quite a... Down in New South Wales? Yeah. It's quite a little racist town, and actually the Freedom Rides came through there, and when they came through... Charlie Perkins actually said that it was the most racist place that they'd ever been and they went to the theatre and I remember my dad telling me these stories about the theatre and it's funny because growing up your dad tells you these stories and then as I get older I read these things and so it's, it's really bizarre. But he told me as he was progressing through life, he ended up moving to Brisbane because he knew that living in a small country town wasn't going to get him very far. So he moved to Brisbane and all the rest of it. But I remember him saying to me, Julie, I could do these things. I could do these things that these fellas can do, but I can't do it because I don't have the qualification. So education's always been really important and it's been really instilled in me growing up as an Aboriginal Australian but also, too, like I came to realise, and I joke about this with my supervisor all the time, that I became fascinated with policy when I was about 12 years old because I understood the impact that policies have on people. It's unusual for a 12-year-old to be into policy. Yeah. How, how did that evolve, <laughs> do you think, Julie? Just from my dad's story. So I don't think I necessarily understood it as policies per se. I think I understood it more like these things happened and as I got older, I started to learn that the policies had names and the implications of governments and the governments that push forth these policies. So it wasn't necessarily that I was like a 12-year-old scholar in my head. I wasn't like that at all. It was just that I understood that these things have a huge impact. And I remember I, I was talking how I talk now when I was like 13, 14 years old. So, but I have my father to thank for that because, you know, you get told all these stories and they get stuck in your head. So, yeah, I remember I was in grade 10. I wanted to drop out after grade 10 and I wanted to be a, a beautician and a hairdresser. And my dad said no. Um, he got real mad at me because he wasn't afforded those opportunities as well. He said, no, no one's going to take you serious unless you have that bit of paper. And I said, okay, dad. So I kept going through 11 and 12, but I was just really disengaged. Like, I wasn't a kid that did real well at school. I was disengaged because, you know, especially in high school, like when I went to high school, I was one of the only Aboriginal girls in my school. And it's a point where I come to realise that I was different, but not in a shameful kind of way, but I just realised and, you know, I went to a Catholic school because my dad thought that that's where you get a good education, even though over time he became 
disenfranchised with Catholicism and everything because that was the mission that they were placed on, a Catholic mission. But I remember in one of my year nine classes, like one of the textbooks, I opened it up and it said the missionaries came and they saved the Aboriginal people. And I remember sitting there and I was looking at it and I was like, that's that's not right. That's not what happened. If anything, they ruined our culture. And so I was always in this constant battle. It must be interesting looking back now that you're studying this as a PhD to kind of see a bit more of the reasons perhaps why you felt that disenfranchisement and and perhaps others as well? 100%. I think that the experiences, and I think it's the same for a lot of Indigenous people, their experiences in their life is what leads them to do what they need to do. And everybody takes, and I think it's the same for everybody, whether you're Indigenous or not, but you you get on this journey and then you finally decide it's something that you want to do. And I think for Indigenous people, it just becomes a lot more apparent, a lot more younger, because when you're born Aboriginal, you're born into a political, you, you are political because just you being is political. Yeah, so um, when I finished school, I started to go to uni and I left uni and my dad was not happy with me. I was living in Redcliffe with my dad and I dropped out because it was just too hard and I didn't understand how to do uni. And when I dropped out, my dad stopped talking to me. He stopped talking to me for about six months because he was just so disappointed in me. And it, that broke me. That would be difficult. Yeah, like this is the man that I idolise. Like he's my hero. He's the one that's taught me to be a strong, proud Aboriginal woman and he stopped because he, you know, now looking back, I understand why, but he was just so disappointed because, you know, for him, that was a huge accomplishment. Out of all his children, I'm the only one that's gone to university, you know, so that hit and hurt a lot. But the following year, I decided to go back to uni. I went to Cairns and I was young and I had lots of fun because it's Cairns (laughs) and I didn't end up finishing a degree. And that again, disappointed my dad. But when I went back, I um, pulled my finger out, as my dad likes to say, and I graduated with first class honours in in my education degree. Oh, congratulations. So the thing was that I was honing in and I was very lucky. I went to a small regional university that had a heavy emphasis on Indigenous education and that's what drove me. That's what interests me. And I guess too, like... One of the things, having been a teacher, especially in, in some remote schools, is that you see that these kids aren't engaged because we're pushing a, a Western paradigm down their throats. And I was one of those kids. You know, I grew up in an urban area, but it was still the same story. So, you know, like that's a very condensed version, even though it sounds like quite a big yarn. It's a, a condensed version of a reason why I chose to get into education and why I chose to get into Indigenous education. Like, I never said I was getting into education. I always said Indigenous education, so... Definitely want to come back to you and, and hear about what's the way forward, I think, Julie, and to see whether there's some overlap here. But, but Nina, I'd be love to hear from you now as well about your perspective on inclusive education. And this takes us in a couple of directions. Firstly, your bike... or or selection of bikes, I should say, collection of bikes, and also over to Africa and tell us about your PhD and and what, how these two, you would think, quite diverse topics have actually merged together for your research. Sure. It'd be my pleasure. It's one of my greatest stories to tell. 
it made sense to me. I grew up in a in a household where education was very valued. I enjoyed school, but I was a little disruptive when I was younger. I was just very physically based, and it was hard for me to sit down and concentrate. And through primary school and 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 a bit of high school, at at high school there was a switch for me because I was able to do sports. And my body kind of got stronger and fitter, and I could really channel my energy into that, which calmed my mind. And so that meant that I really relied on my physicality to help orientate and relate to the world. And then education started making sense because I could actually focus on it. And so being physical was a really instrumental part of that, and it's it's still a theme that's in my work and in my daily being in the world. And I went and did education as well as a mature age student. I dropped out of my first course as well and then went and got a job, travelled around. During my travels, I was over in Europe and, you know, would hold informal English classes in pubs for friends. And they said, oh, you, you know, you're good at explaining things. And I was like, oh, OK. So when I came back to Australia, did an education degree and knew that I wanted to work with adults and went into international student and adult education at university at the tertiary level. And I did that for a number of years and absolutely loved it and was in a classroom and had one of those kind of pedagogical moments where it was just, I saw all these people from around the world talking about incredible things and we would never have the opportunity to come together. And yet here we were in this classroom and I thought to myself, what an amazing opportunity for us to be here and do this and not everyone has this opportunity and can afford to come to Australia and be in this class and so I then instead of going more down education did a master's of international development and so instead of being here in Australia I decided to expand myself and go and work overseas on women's health and education programs in uh, less resource countries and actually to learn more than the students or people I was working with learnt from me. And that helped broaden my scope, particularly for different ways of learning, different situations, you know, different philosophies, resources, access, all of that kind of thing. So when I came back to Australia and was looking at doing my PhD, I wanted to combine my love of exercise and being physical and relating to the world, my love of education, my love of working on gender social justice and, you know, working overseas. And so my current PhD is looking at how bicycles feature in rural African girls' access to secondary education. So it's all come together. It has. All those diverse yeah, I'm very, very lucky. <laughs> and isn't that interesting? That is the journey of, of the teacher and the researcher, I think. And so, and for both of you, I think you've, you've both shown that. But how do bikes for the women you've studied, how does that come into their education journey? Well, it's interesting because a lot of the girls' education, education in general is, a, is an international ongoing issue that obviously has had a lot of discussion and debate and, and good work and more work to do um, that's gone on. And particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, currently there are 16 million children who are still out of school and distance is a critical feature to particularly for secondary school because on average it's 10 kilometers in a lot of places you'll have a primary school within the village but not a secondary school which is on average about 10 k's and for young bodies and little legs that's two hours 
walking and that's not including the terrain, the weather, the things you encounter along the way which can be very challenging. So some of the things that I was looking at, I didn't want to do confirmation bias research in the sense that we know girls are disadvantaged, we know education is a good way to shift sociological circumstances, Uh, we know that economics is difficult. I didn't want to keep doing that and I know that the Sustainable Development Goals and the UN has done a lot of work in progressing African girls' education, building schools, you know, gender mainstreaming and and changing some of the materials used in schools and, and teacher training. But the girls can't actually benefit from those if they don't get in the school door. So for me, I was looking at how do you get them from their door to the school in order to just to have that experience and possibility of, of education and not just entering, but also continuing and progressing. And bikes is a great way of doing that. So my research is looking at the bike as the entry point, not from an economic point of view, not from a sociological or psychology point of view, but I'm using new materialisms to look at the actual body or object of the bicycle to see how it relates to the girls and, and the micropolitics in that moment. Are there cultural aspects that need to be overcome with, with access to the bikes or is using a bike seen as okay for for women in, in Africa? Africa is a continent yeah, of <laughs> and there are many, many different yeah. uh, countries and cultures and <laughs> within communities, within mm. families, within person- individual personalities. So I'm, I'm talking very, very generally here, of course. There are like in any culture and here in Australia you know we've got particular views if I say the word cycling to you you'd pop a particular picture in your mind and I'm pretty sure we could all guess um, what that picture <laughs> might lycra. be yeah yep. Yep. yep road bikes packs yep. that yep. kind of thing pretty serious Sunday mornings yeah yep. yep. there you go <laughs> and coffee shops at the end of it mm. and and for example if I said a family commute on a bicycle you know you would get a different kind of picture mm-hmm. So there are traditional cultural views that are still need to be overcome, that are quite entrenched and still have traces that impact girls' bodies and girls' subjectivities and identities and how people monitor themselves and each other, particularly because they're girls, so they're younger, so the difference to kind of older monitoring and surveillance of what a good girl does, you know, how you be in the world and what you do is very important and they're different cultural expectation and roles than here in Australia so it's a big feature and that's an aspect that definitely comes into my research but there is particularly in the last five years the organisation I'm doing my research with is called Village Bicycle Project and they work in Sierra Leone which is where my research is more my field work was predominantly based and in Ghana and Their country program manager, stylish Karim Kamara, is an incredible young man and has done with the work for Village Bicycle Project plus the other projects and initiatives he's done in Lunsa, which is a community I was working with, is making significant cultural and social changes within not just Lunsa but within Sierra Leone and... It, it's quite inspiring. So in, in five years, I mean, it shows that if you can just sort of drill down to get through this, these quite entrenched mm. uh, and a number of entrenched issues mm. that, that block 
mm. women particularly from accessing education, that sometimes that, that, that key can open up other opportunities, doesn't it, mm. in that beautiful bike? Well, it's interesting. Village Bicycle Project has been there for 10 years, but in the last five years really made changes. So with the girls riding bikes, you know, there'd be cultural stereotypes of, you know, girls who ride bikes are prostitutes or wanton or they not out of control, but they don't do what they're told. And so, you know, you'll be a spinster, you won't have a family, no one will want to marry you. Or that riding a bike will stop you having children and do some damage to your bodies, which is a big, big consideration because, you know, having families and being a mother is, is quite central and, and well regarded in certain certain societies. So it that's a big mental, cultural, discursive barrier to overcome after a long history. And there are there are big shifts happening, you know, people calling out saying, go for it, you can do it, so great to see you, we're so proud of you, and things like this as we're riding past with the girls, you know. And the big school sports carnivals where hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people come out and they have designated bike rides instead of just the track events and they have girls-only bike rides and then just the whole community screaming for these girls cheering them on. So in my mind, I, I feel the energy and the euphoria of positive possible change. What an exciting time to be doing your research, Nina. And Julie, I see you you're nodding. I mean, you kind of think from Africa to Aboriginal Australia, it must be completely different. But I can see there's, there's some issues of overlap here, isn't it? I mean, how do we break through some of these entrenched issues that, that you were speaking about and that you've experienced even yourself? How, how have you reflected on that with your research? <laughs> we're throwing a pebble into an ocean. <laughs> Basically, the thing is... When we talk about Australia and we talk about Indigenous education, first of all, I would put forth that Indigenous education is not Indigenous education. It is a Western perspective of what Indigenous education should be, straight up. Now, that took me a little while to get there because we still work within a a Western paradigm where we push Indigenous education into it. And because it's got the word Indigenous in front of it, we think that that's the right thing to do. Now, the Australian curriculum has a cross-curriculum priority, which is embedding like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories, identities and perspectives into it, which is great. But also one of the issues with that is that educators and teachers put a Western paradigm over the top of an Indigenous paradigm so even though so a great example is when Nina was saying when she went over overseas and she was teaching but she was learning and that's not a lot people don't do that in in an Australian education system the teacher is the key and the teacher is the one that teaches and not necessarily learns from the students and see I find that a really bizarre concept because you know, you learn from everybody and everything. And just because you're teaching a five-year-old or you're teaching a 48-year-old, you still learn something from that person. And so when we look at that particular element in our curriculum, whilst it's there to embed inclusivity, what if the teacher that's teaching it is a racist? It can actually further marginalise the people in the classroom. Exactly. And then what happens is non-Indigenous people take on strong roles in these positions or or these areas and then they become the expert. Sorry, you are not the expert. I'm quite firm in my beliefs because I've I've worked in, in schools where 
I'm the token black teacher and I want you and we really want to be inclusive and we want to do this and we want to do that. But the first thing teachers need to do is take a look at themselves and think about how they perceive the world. And when I was talking before about walking in two worlds, a lot of non-Indigenous people don't have the ability to step outside their way of thinking to understand how to walk within a different world. So when you're saying Indigenous perspectives, it's not about painting a boomerang, doing dot painting for NADOC. That's not an Indigenous perspective. That's a stereotype, tokenistic perspective. If you want to have inclusive education in your classroom, that's not going to do it. And the Australian curriculum and that, it is a great way to promote inclusive education. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done prior to that. And that comes back to the educators, the education system. It comes back to the school administrators in them pushing for that. And the problem is too, and a lot of Indigenous people will feel this, when you are an Indigenous teacher walking into a non-Indigenous school environment and you are the only Indigenous teacher, there's this, you feel this awful tension within yourself because you have to fit within the confines of the institution. But then they want your input on something. But then if it doesn't suit their agenda, it's just scrapped. So I can give you an example where I was told to embed more Indigenous perspectives in the school and so I got in a a community program into the school and I was told by my principal that not just the Indigenous kids can do it, the white kids have to do it as well. And I said, but that defeats the purpose because it's all about the engagement in the school and getting them to have that connection and that identity within the school because within the classroom they don't get that. And I understand where she was coming from, but that was not the time nor the place to do it. And if you want to do that, then you have to put a lot more work into it. People have to change their mindsets and they have to decolonise their brain. And inclusive for who? Exactly. And it's a really difficult thing to balance because, like, we've probably all heard it now since the BLM movement, like white fragility and things like that. And that's what you get being an Indigenous person sitting in a, in a staff room, in a staff meeting when something comes up. You sit there and you say something and you can feel your gut tense. You can feel your chest tighten. Like you get all these anxieties and you get people going on and, you know, they ramp on about something else and they don't realise that they're actually being blatantly racist. But then they say that they're not racist and then they teach these children. And, you know, I've seen it. I've seen it over and over and over again. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I left the system because I couldn't work within the confines of that. It was way too hard. And there is research out there that says that you're working within a colonial paradigm, basically, because it's just an extension of when it was established. It's just continued on over the times. And yes, we've had development, but you're going into these areas and that's exactly it. There's three different ways that you have to work out how you have to fit in. Are there particular impacts that you've noticed, Julie, particularly for women, for inclusive education? Are there other barriers that Indigenous Aboriginal women have to overcome as well? Well, when you think about school structures, generally it's men that hold the high positions within the school. So you have white patriarchy within the school system. So unless you're working with someone who... Let me say this, when my experiences of working within schools, there are two different types of people that work within Indigenous education. And I'll just use the term very loosely, Indigenous education, meaning that you're working in a very high 
Indigenous Population School, not as in curriculum. So when you're working in these areas, I believe from my experience that there's two different types of people that work within the system. There's the people that are there because they genuinely think that they want to help support and, and, and have a cause for social justice. And then you've got people that just come because it's a part of getting a transfer back, especially in Queensland. So there's a lot of people that will transfer, that will go remote for their own benefit. And people quite openly say to you, oh, why are you here? You know, not, and it's quite, a. I found it quite bizarre because I live in a bubble sometimes where I think people think like me and people live like me and, and, you know, want the same things as me. And that day that that bubble burst, I cried for hours because it was just kind of like, I didn't think you became a teacher because you want good holidays and you want to save for your house or things like that. So people would come up and they would say, oh, I've got a mountain of debt. You know, we're going to be here maybe two, maybe three years, depending on how we go, or we're going to get married next year, so we need to save some money. Yeah, so why are you here? A lot of the advertisement, too, around education is about what benefits the teacher. And I think that's the wrong... This is just my perspective. Because for me, and and for you, Nina, like, education is sacred. It's so important. And, you know, it's been a part of my culture for 65,000 years or more. You know, that's how we survive through educating and educating just doesn't stop at year 12. It continues your whole life and you learn in different ways. But yeah, so when you're in these environments, a lot of the time people too go for promotion. So you're working with people that work within an environment with very vulnerable people that are there for their own financial gain. And that kills me. And so you've got that going up against it. And then you've got a lot of, you know, older white men that are in these positions of power and how they treat you too. Like I remember when I came out and I had the principal where I went, they just gave me no time a day, nothing. I'm very competent. I'm a very competent teacher. I'm very meticulous with my planning. I stick to all my timelines. I work my kids hard. If we ask for things, we never got it, but the non-Indigenous female teachers did. Male teachers got whatever they wanted So, you know, there are these sort of things within education too, I think. And unfortunately, I've seen it myself. A lot of teachers that are very dedicated leave. They leave because they put their heart and soul into it, like myself, and then you... You can't go any further. You've given all you can you can give. And... It's overwhelming. Yeah. Mm. But having said that, and I see where you're coming from, and teaching can be a very hard <laughs> slog, very unthankful. Yes. Um, and a lot of people who are not teachers, I'm sure, would appreciate but not know how much effort and more work that you put in. But it is interesting because the students let you know. Yeah. So you'll have these magical moments or these, you'll be walking 15 years later, walking in a supermarket and you say, Miss Ginsburg, Miss Ginsburg, oh my God, you know, hi, my name's Cassandra, you know, whatever. This is my two kids, I remember you, you were my favourite teacher, do you remember when? And they'll tell you a story and you'll get this flash and you'll go, okay, so I made a difference for you in that moment. And that's what teachers live for. That is. And that's one thing I desperately miss. I love being with those kids. Like it's making me want to like cry right now because that's the thing. That's why you do it. You do it for those kids and you do it for a betterment of their future Mm. because they are our future. And that's one thing that was instilled from my dad. You know, like 
the education is for the betterment of our society. And, you know, when you lose hope in a system, mm. that's what happens. Mm. But those kids are the things that drive you. That's mm. the reason I lost my voice in the first year of teaching, which is not uncommon for teachers. And I still went to work every day because when you teach remote, it's really hard. There is no substitute teachers. It's very hard. Sometimes they have to split the classes up and so the kids go into different classrooms. And I would go in and I would write things down and my teacher aide would say, or whatever I need to do. They are what make the job. Mm. It is for the kids. You know, it is for our society. And we lose sight of that sometimes with all the, the data and the metrics. Hopefully by what you're doing and breaking down and look what these problems are, hopefully we can enable more children to have access to to the system. Is that kind of what drives you in, in your work? Yeah. I'm looking at why Indigenous education policies keep failing. There's a lot of literature around that in an education sense. But the thing is, nobody looks at the policy. And one of the key themes in education literature around Indigenous education is that there is no voice. Now, voice has been a huge thing for many, many years. Um, we had that um, Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is all about the voice. And people underestimate how important that is. But if you have people sitting there deciding uh, on policy issues that are so disconnected, it's never going to change. So I always think about it like this. If you're doing a mass sum and you continually use the same formula, you're going to continue to get the same answer. And from my preliminary research, the formula hasn't changed. In fact, the education policy for Indigenous education has remained consistently the same since 1989. And the policies have become more tight and more data-driven over that time, but there has been very little variance and change. And from that perspective, the policy process isn't addressed. So I haven't found any research to this point that actually looks at the policy process. And that's why I'm in the School of Government and International Relations, right? So not in an education... Because everybody thinks, oh, you should be in an education department. Well, no, I'm not. Because the thing is, we, we keep cycling the same research and the same ideas through the literature on that side. And we haven't stepped beyond that. There are some education scholars who do focus in on education policy, but it's from a, a sociology point of view rather than a politics point of view. So my idea is to look at what this policy subsystem looks like and the coalitions that go into it, because I'm using the advocacy coalition framework to model my, my research and to look at who is in these coalitions, who are in these policy subsystems and what are the beliefs, because a core part of that framework is the belief system. And what we were talking about before, like your beliefs are what drives you. And when we're talking about inclusive education, like teachers need to look at themselves rather than thinking about, well, how do I teach it? You know, so it's taking that step back. And that's one thing that I feel like in Indigenous issues and Indigenous education, we haven't done that. It's constantly the same cycle over and over and over again, rather than just taking that step back. And my passion for policy, I'm such a policy nerd, but you know, like... <laughs> It intrigues me because people should take it more seriously because policy is one of those things. It's the blood life of every nation state. It it, it dictates how you live your life. It underpins everything. 
It underpins everything. Mm. People need to really understand that these things are super important. And there is a problematic with um, current education system, particularly here in Australia, with not a lot of change happening because of neoliberalist kind of imperatives that are underpinning or driving (laughs) the delivery of of education. And just as you said in Indigenous education and your observation that it hasn't changed much, you know, with the UN Development Goals and now the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, there have been big international investments and research and initiatives in order to try and progress poverty reduction and employment opportunity, WASH features and girls' education and gender justice. So one of the reasons I'm doing my research is is not to say that that's all wrong or to leave it behind, but as that conversation is ongoing is to try and add a different perspective or a different inroad to try and move it and progress it or deepen those understandings in a different and inventive way that have, hasn't yet been done because we we are making progress, but we really need to flip the switch for the actual change, the action of change to happen in the classrooms. Yeah. And then you've been making your research even more accessible too through your blog. And is that sort of, that's an aspect of, of what you're doing, trying to get a bit more of the conversation around really the policies, as we say, that underpin these things. Yeah, the mm. blog is really interesting. So my blog is called bicyclescreatechange.com. And I started it in, I think, 2015 in October. So it's been over six years. And one of the main drivers of starting the blog is when I applied to do my PhD, I was very, very worried about the writing and research component. And I was very nervous about putting it all together and sharing my work and would I be good enough and all of those kind of things. And I started the blog to share my writing publicly and regularly to try and force myself to get over that and to look more widely. I also didn't want to become an academic wanker who could... This is true. This is the exact thought that I had. I don't want to go down that route where all I do is write in academic speak, where I can't communicate, you know, my genuine passion that started out as riding bikes is fun and it gets you to places and you can be a better person. And so the blog showcases a bit of my PhD research and interest areas and a bit of the university life. And a bit of your art? Yes, yep, and other other interesting points. Bikes are an extension. I have a couple of art bikes and I use bikes education and social justice themes to just explore how environmentally or socially we can be a better people. And you don't have to like bikes to have a look through it. You know, there's there's some great themes. And I wanted to do something positive because in my past research and work in international development I could and teaching, I could feel myself starting to burn out with you know an aspirational passion for wanting to do good and to help change and to help people have more positive life outcomes but that's a very very hard thing to do and I knew particularly in international development working on humanitarian and aid projects I deliberately chose something that was tangible physical and positive when I was looking at the current space that I'm working in so that I will be able to sustain, maintain and thrive in in the space that I'm in as well as helping others. Can I just say I really love that. I love that because knowledge is for everybody Mm -hmm. and we get into a state where we think only certain people are allowed to access information 
some people can't read, but they're some of the smartest people you will ever meet. And so the fact, I know yours is a written, obviously it's a written blog, but, you know, sharing information and sharing knowledge with people is so important. And this is where my passion for education comes from because education isn't just a classroom Mm. and people need to move past that. It's a lifelong ongoing process. It is. And you hear that when you do your undergrad course, you hear, you know, it's a lot, it's a learning journey and you want to set kids up so that they're constantly evolving and constantly learning, Mm. but it is. And you need to instill that love of learning, you know, yeah. And being open to new and different ideas. And it's not just yes. kids who learn as, as community members, as people of the world, you know, within our homes, within our families and for ourselves. You know, what we think and know is just learnt. And at the moment, it makes sense to us. But we need to be open to exactly. being more flexible. So with my blog, I, I've invited guest writers. I've, I now get people internationally who kind of send me like academic. So as a PhD candidate, it's really good because I can leverage it for contact and say, here's here's some of the work I do. You know, have a look. And I've had a few professors write blog posts and guest articles, which is great. But I can go up to a cafe and there'll be a couple of bikes, start up a conversation. And suddenly we're talking about, you know, modified bikes for cyclists with diffabilities, not disabilities, diffabilities, and riding off-road. And, you know, suddenly I meet a couple of new people and and have people to ride with and enter a totally new world. And for me, as a teacher, a learner, and a human, that's the lifelong learning that I want to kind of promote and work on and share. And you have to instill that, and exactly. And that's what I was talking about before with inclusive education. It's good to have that banner, but the thing is these educators, these teachers need to take a step back and they need to be a learner as well. Because you can learn so much from lots of different people and it's okay if you've learnt a particular thing or a particular style or something and you learn that or a thought and you've learnt, oh, that's not quite right. It's okay, you know, and that was one of the biggest things I would do with my kids is, is like, I don't know or I got it wrong. And a lot of, a lot of educators are scared to say I got it wrong. And it's not an admission of weakness. It's, it's not. to say, I'm open to learning, you know, can and, you teach me that? And mm. I think that's an issue in inclusive education is that people are so scared of getting it wrong or doing it wrong. And when I say inclusive education, I'm talking across the across the spectrum. You know, they have to know how to do it or they'll do it in a way that they don't want to rock the boat or something like that. And they don't realise that you have to learn yourself. And then once you know things and you can move forward or have those conversations with people, you know, you can make a difference in inclusive education. It's not about picking up a curriculum document and running forth with it. That's not inclusive education. Mm -hmm. And if you think that's inclusive education, then you need to take a step back and have a long, hard think and look at yourself because that's not what inclusive education is. It's about yourself and understanding yourself and, and teaching that to your students as well. They're the skills that we need. That's mm. how inclusivity happens. Mm. And and demonstrating yes. those kind of skills of curiosity about things. Any one nationality or, or – it was fantastic. So it was always a melting pot. And I, I feel very blessed that that was the space that I could learn to be a better teacher in. And I was just about to say it. What it does is it, it makes you a better teacher mm. because you have to learn how to work with – lots of different people in lots of different ways. One of the best things I I could do in in the class, and I still carry this with me, is I I used to say to in class and think out aloud and say, I wonder why that came about. 
or how that came about. And we'd stop and we'd kind of think. And then, of course, you'd have to process a little bit. Was it because this thing? Was it because of that thing? Hmm. And what do we think about that? And too often we try to get kids to... we think for them rather than get them to learn how to think. Or it's the answer. There's one right answer yes. as opposed to just the process of critically thinking, yeah. digesting, you know, adding ideas together, processing the actual process of thinking, which is a lifelong skill as opposed to right or wrong answer, which again is that binary, right, wrong, good, bad, in, out, inclusive, exclusive. Exactly. Well, I thank you both for explaining inclusive education so thoroughly, and I think we've built a few of those bridges today. Thank you so much, Nina, and thank you, Julie, for joining us on the Gender Card podcast today. Thanks thank so much you. for the opportunity, Nance. That was Griffith University PhD researchers Julie Ballingary and Nina Ginsberg speaking to us for this episode of the Gender Card. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.